Dalton takes a shotgun snap. Quick throw. Nice. Caught by Get Green. It, it is a yeah. touchdown. Adriel Jeremiah Green. You don't live in Cleveland. Hello and welcome to episode 71 of Cincinnati, the Bengals UK podcast. Now, this episode was supposed to kickstart our look back at the season and I was going to wait for Nathan to come back from LA and we were going to go and sit down and go through our, our position group grades and our players of the year and all that kind of fun stuff that everyone does at the end of a season. But news dropped last week that legendary coach of the Cincinnati Bengals between 1984 and 1981, the man who led us to Super Bowl 23 in 1989, Sam Weich, had passed away. Now, the outpouring of love and respect for Sam, not just from Bengals fans, but across the NFL as a whole, told you everything you needed to know about him. He was a true one-off and, and obviously universally loved. And regular listeners will know that Sam came on to this podcast last year, the 30th anniversary of that Super Bowl, to share his thoughts on that incredible year. And of course, for me personally, it was perhaps the biggest thrill of all to actually speak to a man who I idolised when I was growing up. And that's a bit strange, isn't it? Well, I mean, we all fall in love with players, quarterbacks who throw it miles down the field, running backs who bulldoze their way into the end zone, wide receivers who make spectacular catches and defensive ends who flatten quarterbacks. But head coaches... I mean, it takes someone very special to make you feel the same way you do about players. So why did I idolise Sam White and why did people love him so much? I'm going to attempt to answer those questions in this special tribute episode of our podcast. Now, in a little while, I'll be speaking to our old chum, Dave Lapham, about Sam's impact both on and off the field. And I'll be speaking to two British Bengals fans who met Sam and had their own stories to tell I'll also be replaying the interview I did with Sam last year in its entirety. And, uh, I mean, I don't want to blow my own trumpet, but it really is well worth a, a listen. So there's lots to look forward to. Uh, but first, I'm going to speak for a little bit more because uh, I just wanted to go through Sam's career, if you'll allow me. Uh, because it demonstrates that on the field, he really was one of the more innovative coaches of the 20th century, which sounds like... You know, this grand and homerish statement to make. But I think it really is true. Sam was born in Atlanta in 1945, went to Furman University and was picked up by the Bengals from UFL team, the Wheeling Ironmen, which is still the most fantastic name for a team I think I've ever heard. So Sam, uh, he was an original Bengal and was back up to those very first quarterbacks, John Stouffer and Jerry Warren in that first season. In 1968, uh, at the end of that season, Paul Brown and the Bengals picked up the quasi-mythical, legendary quarterback Greg Cook, and Sam backed him up too. He was also around a coaching staff that included Paul Brown and Bill Walsh, future Hall of Famers. Well, actually, Paul was, I think, already Hall of Famer by the time he started or, or founded the Bengals, and Bill Walsh was certainly. Uh, a decade or so later uh, would be inducted into the Hall of Fame um, and Bill was about to introduce the Ohio River offence or West Coast offence as it was renamed in the 1980s and the story goes that Paul Brown was so impressed with Sam's note-taking during team meetings he always thought that he might be a good coach one day 
and Bill Walsh didn't forget either. At the end of the 1970s, he hired Sam as quarterback's coach for the San Francisco 49ers, and Sam mentored a young quarterback by the name of Joe Montana for the first four years of his career, which included, well, a certain Super Bowl win against a certain team from Ohio in uh, 1982, I think it was, early 1982. So when Paul Brown rehired Sam in 1984, legend has it he gave Sam back that very same notepad he had so diligently filled during those team meetings back in the early 1970s. Uh, there was another reason why Brown brought him back to Cincinnati, and that was innovation. Sam had been head coach of Indiana University for two years and had introduced some concepts that seemed outlandish and, according to some, against the law at the time. And, of course, we're talking about the no-huddle offence here. Uh, now, the famous you-don't-live-in-Cleveland incident, you know, that one that's been replayed dozens of times across the internet since Sam's death was announced might be his famous moment with fans around the league. But for football people, the no-huddle offence became Sam's calling card. Uh, and opponents absolutely hated it. Most notably, Bill's coach, uh, Marv Levy, tried to ban it two hours before the AFC Championship game in 1988 and then went on to copy it in subsequent years. I won't, won't dwell on that, obviously. Um but you look around the league now and it's a staple thing. You'll see it in every single game. Uh, an NFL game doesn't seem like an NFL game with a bit of hurry up or a no huddle. Uh, and that was all down to Sam. Um, and because of that, he was known as Wicky Wacky Wash by many. Uh, but off the field, I mean, reporters loved him because he just gave great, funny, unfiltered interviews all the time. Uh, and I was trying to think, you know, what would be or who would be the closest comparison um, that I could come up with in our own football. And I think it would be Brian Clough, I have to say. I mean, he wasn't nearly as dictatorial as Clough and he didn't have as big a chip on his shoulder. But there are definite similarities. You know, he, he made reporters laugh all the time. He He didn't stand on ceremony. He was forthright in his opinions, whether they were right or wrong. Um, he did it all, but he, he sort of gave them with, without any cynicism. There was a bit of sarcasm there. There's always self-deprecation, but you just didn't know which sandwich was going to turn up, and that made him exciting. And as a fan, you know, we react emotionally to players and coaches who in turn react emotionally for the for the teams they play for and the teams that we support. And he really was one of those coaches that you just immediately rooted for and in my case idolised. I was just in awe of the man. So much notice, so it's a bit of a weird story. But I actually copied the way he clapped. And I now still clap in the same way that Sam Weish clapped. Don't ask me why. I was just growing up. It was my formative years. I used to love the way he just clapped in a sort of slightly... I don't know how to describe it. Slightly differently to how most people clap. And I used to love it when he used to kind of crouch on the ground on the sidelines, crouch on his knees and, and kind of clap. He clapped in this particular way. And I've copied him and I've carried on clapping in the same way as Sam White. Not quite the legacy that he was perhaps looking for, but, you know, I'm sure he'd like it if he knew. Uh, so, not only, you know, he wasn't only just brilliant on the field. Uh, of course, his bond with Boomer and the way they ran that offence was just incredible. But he was infectious and intense off it 
two. And of course, his feud with Houston Oilers head coach Jerry Glanville was just incredible um, and made you just love him even more. Glanville was like this ridiculous pantomime villain dressing all in black and coaching his teams who were pretty talented. That Oilers team was pretty talented, but he coached them right on that line. You know, they did a few naughty things. Uh, And Sam and Glanville had some proper ding-dongs back in those days, not least when the Bengals beat the Oilers 61-7 in 1989. Still perhaps my favourite Bengals game of all time. I mean, it really was hilarious. The Bengals were like 30 points up at half-time. So Sam elected to kick an onside kick to begin the second half. Uh, And with only seconds to go, I mean, mean, who does that? And they won and they, they retrieved it and they went down and scored. Uh, and with only like seconds to go and leading 58-7 at the end of the game, he took a time out to kick a field goal to inflict even more humiliation on Glanville. I mean, he, he, they were just incredible. Um, and of, of course, all this happened in an era when there was some big personalities around the league. Bill Parcells, Buddy Ryan, Jim Mora, Chuck Noll, Marty Schottenheimer. And of course, Sam, who kind of sat there in amongst those greats, held his own... Um, I was just an amazing guy. So, there's a little potted history of his career. I, I do urge you to go onto YouTube. Uh, one of our flock got in touch the other day and said, I've just been down a, a Samwise YouTube hole, um, which sounds unpleasant, but actually it's brilliant because you can see bits of him when he was still playing. There's one memorable touchdown pass he threw, like 80 yard to, to Bob Trumpy, which is amazing. Uh, and then, of course, you see loads of great stuff about his coaching, lots of fantastic interviews. His humour really, really shines through. And uh, this is why I find the history of our team so interesting, because you realise that, you know, some amazing things happened in Cincinnati, in the 70s, in the 80s. We had Paul Brown, Bill Walsh, Kenny Anderson, Sam Boomer, Anti Munoz, the Super, the two Super Bowl runs. We were known for innovations, and I do really uh, recommend going and having a look at those YouTube videos because it actually makes you pretty proud to support a team that was so innovative, you know. And if you want to read more on the Ohio River offense that soon became the uh, West Coast offense. I really recommend Chris Wessling's, uh, of, you know, the guy who's been on this podcast, but uh, one of the Around the NFL podcast people. He wrote uh, a fantastic, uh, I guess he calls it a love letter to those 70s and 80s Bengals. And you can find that uh, it's at nfl.com slash Ohio River offense. And it is really worth... Uh, uh, a read it's fantastic stuff so that's me talking now uh, i think it's about time we brought in someone else to talk and uh, it's our first special guest and uh joining us now is bengal's legend and friend of bengal's uk he's been on the podcast several times before uh it is of course uh dave lapham dave are you there are you okay yes paul how are you sir yeah not too bad thank you obviously uh pretty devastated at this news uh, what were you, what were your initial thoughts when the news came through yeah i was i was uh saddened to be sure you know i mean sam had uh had gone through so much you know the, the heart transplant successful transplant and then uh to be you know taken by cancer and 
I get, my understanding is his body was pretty riddled by it. It was just, uh, um, you know, had spread, it got into his liver and, and spread throughout his body and, uh, and, and took him, uh, in a, in a very devastating way, you know, because he had been, he had bounced back so well sure. after the heart transplant surgery and, uh, and, and everything was on the upswing. Hmm. Everything was on the uptick. And then for something like that to happen, the insidious disease that it is, cancer is, uh, cancer strikes again. Absolutely. So I, I'm doing, you know, we wanted to do something to to pay tribute to Sam. And of course, you've been there in Cincinnati for a long time. But you, you, you arrived in Cincinnati just after Sam left as a player and then stopped playing just before Sam became coach. Right. So uh, but you've been there for so many years. What was what was Sam the man like to deal with on a one to one basis on a on a daily basis, I guess? Yeah, I was fortunate enough to, uh, to to deal with Sam as a as a broadcaster. My uh, my first year in the uh, in the broadcast booth, um, you know, was was Sam's first year as head coach with the Cincinnati Bengals. He came over from Indiana University, and um, of course, he had been on Bill Walsh's staff that beat the Cincinnati Bengals in mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in the Super Bowl. So the Bengals were acutely aware of what what Sam's offensive mind was like. And I remember Paul Brown telling me that um, he wanted to take uh, and, and keep Sam Weiss's playbook because Sam took right. meticulous notes. And uh, and Paul Brown was impressed by everything that Sam Weiss did when he was a quarterback with the Cincinnati Bengals and how he was so detail-oriented. You know, every detail was important to him. And, and at that point, Paul thought that, you know, maybe Sam might get into the professional coaching. So, um, But the, the, the thing with Sam is, is he was so much fun. Yeah. I mean, the guy. Every every day was was a good day for Sam Weiss, and it was always there was always humor. There was always a lot of fun, and in such a fertile mind. I mean, Sam just was so innovative, and I mean, some of the things that Sam brought to the table, basically expanding the two minute drill as such to this no huddle up tempo offense that that caused the league, you know, so many problems. And uh, Chuck Knox, you know, had had his defensive lineman fake right. injury to try to slow it down in the playoffs, and then and then uh, Marv Levy tried to get the league to outlaw it in about for about a two hour time frame before the AFC Championship game that year in uh, 1988. It was legal, and and then they decided to reverse their decision on that. And then Marv Levy took it with with Jim Kelly and ran the K gun, and, uh, and, and and now and today it's still being run. So when you change the game like that. When you come up with some sort of innovation, some sort of difference maker that changes the game of football for a long period of time, yeah. like Sam Weiss has done, that's pretty incredible. Absolutely. We'll just get onto that in a little while. But um, as a as a as a, a former player who recently retired, when you saw this no huddle offense, and we've been watching videos, there's some great videos on YouTube that fans can can kind of watch and explain the whole thing but some of the verbiage some of the the kind of play calls uh some of the vocabulary used looked like almost like an alien language as a former player when you saw that offense in action were you in awe were you you know you must have talked you know you must have spoken to people like Munoz and Montoya on that line about this new offense what were their kind of uh, feelings about it, and and did it seem complicated to you, or or was it just something incredible? Yeah, you're right. The language the language became you know there were buzzwords that uh, yeah. 
everybody in the team had knew about from like a nickname of a player, nickname of an opponent, uh, somebody's favorite car, you know, whatever the situation was, it would, that, that would be the buzzword that would trigger, yeah. you know, it would trigger everything, it would trigger a formation set, motion included in it and all those kind of things. And I think, I think the thing that you had to have was not only a brilliant mind at, uh, at the coaching position, but a very brilliant mind at the quarterback position as well. And Boomer Siason fit mm. that bill. Mm. I mean, Boomer, you know, is football men's the type guy yeah. in terms of his understanding, his ability to process information quickly was, was second to none. So Sam felt very comfortable that, you know, Boomer would be able to uh, be an extension of him on the field with his concept in the mentality of his concept. And so that dynamic, it was like one plus one equals three. It was synergistic mm. really. Mm. And, and it just took off and, uh, and, and, and took off to a very high level. Do you think Sam gets the credit he deserves in terms of football innovation? We all know, we've all seen the outpouring of love and the stories of his kindness and the, the fact that he, you know, had Stanley Morgan round to his uh, house, sorry, Stanley Wilson, beg your pardon, round to his house to kind of help him get off the coke. Uh, you know, we've heard about his visits to the homeless shelters before each game. But as a football man, as an innovator, do you think he gets enough credit? Probably not, and, and I think part of it is, like, in, in every instance, uh, Cincinnati, small Midwest market. Sure. Uh, if, if Sam Weiss had done this in New York, mm. you know, Chicago, um, you know, the, the big city, if this had been an innovation that uh, took the league by storm like it did uh, w- when Sam was with Cincinnati, if it had been one of those mega markets, mm. uh, if it had been the Dallas Cowboys, America's team, for example, or whatever the case may be, I think that uh, that he would have gotten a lot more credit for his mind and his innovation and everything that goes along with it. But um, I, I, I don't think that he gets quite enough credit for it. Just like, you know, in my mind, Kenny Anderson doesn't get enough uh, validation for the Hall of Fame and for him not to make it this year, I think it was very disappointing to a lot of people. Um, so, yeah, I do I do think that that uh, that Sam, you know, he, he could have received more, has should receive more notoriety for his innovation in his mind and his, his football mentality, his football IQ, all those kind of things. But you're right, though. Sam was incredibly generous. I mean, in a, in a, in a giving human being, uh, I remember that uh, there was a, um, a, a poor child, under, underprivileged kid that was would always hang around Spinning Field where the Bengals practiced. Sure. And, and Sam um, basically challenged this young kid to uh, to go to school, he was cutting class a lot, you know, and he would be down there hanging around this complex at Spinning Field by the practice facility, and Sam would uh, try to motivate him, you know, to, mm. to change his life. And, and he uh, he told him, you know, for every B that you bring in your report card, I'll give you, you know, $10, whatever it was. And uh, and, and I'll tell you, he turned that kid's life around. Wow. And that kid, that kid graduated high school, and, you know, it's just like one small example of, of uh, him just reaching out to people that he felt he could have an impact on, for sure. Amazing stuff. I mean, he sounded like such a colourful character to be with on a daily basis. Um, and uh, if you had one sort of sentence to describe Sam or one particular memory, that was a lovely story that you just uh, recalled there, Dave. But just to finish this off and round it off, um, is there one particular memory that, that you will always treasure? I think I think the, the the one that I'll always remember is uh, when we're out in the West Coast and 
the women in the locker room uh, scenario. And Sam came into the press conference with a with a towel wrapped around him, but he wasn't naked. You know, but people sure. assumed he was when he had the towel wrapped around right. him. And, uh, you know, just trying to trying to make a point a point of emphasis, and you know uh, that Sam, Sam would always uh, use humor to make a point. I mean, right. he was the master at it. And the other thing about Sam Weiss that people don't realize and don't give him enough credit for, he was a master magician. <laughs> Sam Weiss could. I, I mean, that, yeah. oh, it was incredible. <laughs> I mean, the card tricks he did, and you know the rope tricks, and you name it, Sam could do it. He he was a sleight of hand guy. And he had big, massive, monstrous hands. Right. And uh, one, one, one thing about Sam Weiss is all of his quarterbacks had an ability to play action pass because Sam, with those big hands, would hide the football himself when he played quarterback, play action passing game. Yeah. And you look at all of them. I mean, every single quarterback that Sam Weiss worked with had tremendous skills you know, at executing the play fake and the play action pass at the quarterback position, that sleight of hand stuff. Uh, Sam the magician, he was something, he was something special. I think that's the perfect way to end that day. Dave, once again, thanks so much. Lovely to talk to you. I wish it was in uh, happier circumstances, but uh, we appreciate uh, you coming on as ever and and, uh, giving us your memories about Sam. That was great. No problem, Paul. Uh, I wish it was under better circumstances as well, but it's great to catch up with you, sir. Okay, Dave. Cheers. So there we go. That was Dave Lapham, who's brilliant and fantastic as per usual. And uh, I hope that gave you a bit of a flavour, not least the stuff on the field but also off the field and why Sam was so special that story about him challenging that down and out kid who came to the practice field was which is fantastic and of course there were stories of Sam going each Sunday morning before a game spending a couple of hours uh, at the homeless shelters in over the Rhine uh, to help out feeding uh, the homeless people uh, and I say, you know, the story about Stanley Wilson is well documented. He really did care about people, which I think sets, you know, I used the comparison of Brian Clough earlier. I'm not saying that Clough didn't care about people, but Sam made it a point, an explicit point to care about people. And uh, some of the stories that are knocking around are just uh, incredible, really. Uh, I also promised in this episode that I would be speaking to uh, two British Bengals fans who had met Sam. So let's bring in the first of those. Okay, and now we have a British Bengals fan, Danny Hawkins. I did say that we were going to get uh, some British perspective on Sam's life and Sam's coaching career. And as I say, uh, joining us now on Cincinnati is Danny Hawkins. Danny, uh, how are you doing? Yeah, very well, Paul. How's things with you? Yeah, not too bad. Happy New Year to you and yours. Now, I met you for the first time uh, at our summer meetup last year, and um, you told me a story which kind of was like, oh, man, that's amazing. And I just thought it would be lovely to hear from you and that story, because you had actually met Sam when you travelled to the States. So do you just want to tell us, I mean, tell us first, how whereabouts in the country are you, first and foremost? Uh, just west of London, okay. so in the Royal County of Berkshire. The Royal County of Berkshire, good stuff. And then, uh, so how long have you been a Bengals fan? Um, well, I'm, I'm a symbol of vintage ball, so right. I trace it back to about the, the mid-80s. I was watching it on TV, of course, in 87. 
I watched my first live game of the Bengals versus the Jets. So I think probably 86, I would say, is when we first got started getting interested in, uh, right, in the Bengals right. specifically. And you mentioned a first live game. So you actually went out to the States. And uh, did you see that in, was that game in River, at Riverfront, was it? No, we, we saw, uh, because it was New York close to us for flights and stuff, we went to... Um, Jets Stadium, where they're playing at Meadowlands by that time. Right, right. So, um, yeah, yeah, that was the first game we saw, and then we've seen subsequent games too. And remind me, was that a, so? That was eighty-seven. They probably lost that game because they didn't win too many games in eighty-seven, yeah. did they? Right. Yeah, um, disappointingly. Yeah. yeah, right. So, tell us your Sam story then, uh, Danny, uh, because it's it's wonderful, and it just I think it illustrates what kind of guy he was, really. Yeah, okay. Well, as I mentioned, I met him a few times, but the precursor to all those meets was um, after that game that we saw in New York, I, I sort of saw the little bit, the, the media or public, publicity team, because they, they kind of gave us tickets. Um, so we planned to go over the next year, so uh, 88 or 89, but we couldn't make, uh, make one of their years. But uh, in 89, we went over to Riverfront to watch them play Tampa. They absolutely hammered them, so that was great. So the next day, I rang the publicity office, um, a girl called Nancy, I think her name was, just to say, you know, thanks for the tickets, thanks for all the help. Um, and a testament to the man was that she said, oh, Sam's here in the office, did you want to have a chat? So, <laughs> so totally, totally caught offside with that. So, um, so yeah, great. So she put, put me through. So we were over in Cincinnati. We told him we saw the game the previous day, and uh, he was uh, glad to hear from us. And just mentioned, oh, we're going out, we're watching the game in L.A., and we're going to watch Houston as well. So he said, well, if you come into LA, why don't you come watch us practice? Wow. And then meet the team, and this is our hotel. That didn't happen so well because we got lost, but that's another story on there. But the following week, we went to Houston. Uh-huh. We bluffed our way into the, into the dome the night before the game with some media guide we'd been given by Nancy. So pretending we were UK journalists, we uh, got into his security, Found our way into the, the bowels of the, the Houston Astrodome. Yeah. Um, and we, we bumped, after walking around indoors, there's no, no way to find our way around. It's like, a, it's like a maze, really. But we found ourselves outside the, the changing rooms, and Sam just like, walked off the, the practice field where they'd been practicing. Yeah. And saw us straight away, beckoned us over, you know, warm handshake, you know, asked us about LA and the holiday and everything going on. And then he said, Do you want to come and meet, meet the players? Want to come into the locker room to meet the players? Oh, wow! So, so you, you know my, my, my stature. I'm you know five foot ten, hundred and forty pounds. You know, ten stone nothing. Yeah. Um, and I just envision though, I just feel so uncomfortable walking into a, a players' change room with towels on, trying to shake hands. Or, yeah, yeah. You know, I would love to have met some of the players. We met some of the players the previous week, but Boomer and uh, and Munoz, people like that, but. I, I just couldn't, I just wouldn't have felt really comfortable. So I said, uh, no, thanks. But it was Wow, you said no. Buffet, you said you know no. I mean? You said no. No, I just, I just felt really awkward, you know. Yeah, They'd just come yeah. off of practice. Um, but, you know, just the fact that he saw us hanging around outside the change room, mm. called us over, yeah. a warm a warm greeting, asked how our they was, even offered, like I said, to come into the change room, yeah. meet some of the players, even though you know, declined it as, as, as nicely as we could. Um, and then just just spent you know nearly ten minutes just chatting about things you know not only about football but yeah. mostly about football as, as you know but and as I said it was really just a testimony to the man that he would take his time out we did that in LA 
invited us to the practice, invited mm. us to the hotel to meet some players. Yeah. Um, they didn't really hang out in the lobby, but we did meet a couple. Yeah. And then said, well, come over to Houston and, and watch the practice over there as well. So, well, that's it, such a lovely story. Really isn't it? Us, you know what y- I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I guess back then, you know, they wouldn't get the kind of interaction with fans outside of the States that they do now, right? Um, so. It was. It was. It's interesting to me that he was so interested and kind and welcoming to you. Not that he wouldn't, but do you know what I mean. It's. It's. It, it's kind of all, not par for the course, but a lot of fans go out there these days, whatever team they support, to yeah. to, to go and see a game. It's a lot easier and a lot cheaper than it, it used to be. Um, uh, but you know that must have been weird for him. Two British guys coming over to. Cause <laughs> I, I'm, I'm guessing it was you and your brother is that right yeah yeah right yeah yeah my brother yeah so yeah it, it was um we we probably stood out with a couple of stalkers potentially you know <laughs> right yeah we're in cincinnati one weekend la the next weekend and houston the, the following weekend you yeah know? yeah and, and um but he was uh he was gracious and kind and uh and generous which is what everyone is kind of saying, the kindness of the man and the generosity away from the football. That seems to be two key words that a lot of people are using to describe him. Um, what? How did you feel when the news hit yesterday? Danny, you must have been absolutely gutted. I was totally shocked. Just, um, I don't know if he was, if he was uh, still struggling with any illness, but... Um... Yeah, a, a real shock. Um, and he, he he leaves some so so many good memories of, of the team, but uh, yeah. so so sad that uh, that it is left passed on so so soon. Really, absolutely. And just one final. But he did, th- but he did see a win. Yes, <laughs> he did see us win the last couple of last couple of games. Yeah, well, that's 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 something, I guess, isn't it? And um, I, I, at the top of the show, I was trying to kind of figure out in my own head why we would do a tribute to Sam White when we you know we didn't do a tribute episode to say Forrest Gregg who 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 died last year as well and and, and kind of um you know took us to another Super Bowl um well, why do you think Sam why do you think Sam resonated with fans because again I'm trying to explain to people who weren't around during those time what kind of head coach he was and why fans really took to him. what was it about him do you think that that made fans uh, really kind of connect with him? Um, I'm drawn to something he said actually in your interview um, where he said that the, the players play the game, the coaches prepare the players to play, but ultimately it's down to the players. So yeah. he, he brought some innovation to, to Cincinnati. Um, I, I remember vividly that the game against Buffalo where they tried all kinds of tricks to to slow us down. Yeah. But he brought some innovation to the game, but he he connected with the crowd, but with his team, it wasn't Sam White. He wasn't like bigger than the team. He wasn't he's never bigger than the organization. It was always about the players and the game. Yeah. And he would be like third or even fourth behind the ownership. And we know how how fondly he thought of uh, Paul Brown as well yeah. As, yeah. as his boss. So I, I I would say something like that is is the reason why we uh, we do have such a fond memory of him. Great stuff, Danny. Well, thanks for coming on and uh, sharing that lovely story. And, uh, yes, Happy New Year to you. Let's hope it's a better a year, certainly for the team coming up. But, uh, yeah, thanks, Danny. I appreciate that. Real pleasure. Thanks, Paul. 
Right now, and as promised, uh, we have another British Bengals fan uh, who's going to recount a really lovely story about Sam for you. Uh, It's Stuart David. Stuart, good morning. Morning, morning, Paul. How are you today? Well, let's just tell everyone where you are in the country and how long you've been a a Bengals fan for. Yeah, sure. So I'm actually based in Wolverhampton in the Midlands, um, and I've been following the Bengals since 88 Super Bowl year. And... um, Obviously, you know, we're asking the question why Sam was so special, well, apart from paying tribute to him, kind of asking people why they thought he was so special. And Was was Sam uh, a big reason why you started supporting the team? Yeah, huge. I mean, obviously, I was very lucky to start following the Bengals in that one year. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, we, yeah, we, you know, we used to watch it on Channel 4, as, as you probably did, Paul, um, you know, and it it was all that iconic imagery and, and, and the sight of sort of Sam Walker being able to touch line, barking his order, giving his directions was just iconic for me. And uh, obviously that was part a massive part of the reason why I sort of took the Bengals under my wing. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, th- I think I made the point earlier that, uh, you know, we fall in love with players and we get in- emotionally involved with people like, you know, quarterbacks and wide receivers and yeah, and and linebackers and defensive ends laying hits on quarterbacks, but it's kind of quite rare that you love a coach as much as some of the players. I think. Yeah, I mean, I think you know whenever you hear, heard him talk in interviews and things, he had such, so much charisma, very straightforward guy, um, engaging, you know, extremely knowledgeable, uh, as we know. Yeah. Just 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 someone you used to think you look at the TV and think, hang on, I want to hear more what this guy's got to say. Absolutely, and and you got a chance to to hear much more what he had to say because you actually met him a few years ago, right? That's the that's, that's yeah, that's correct. That's the story. Two thousand seventeen. Yeah, I was I was lucky enough to go over to PBS, um, and I was also very lucky to be able to attend the Saturday practice um, at PBS. Uh, obviously, you watch the practice, you get to speak to Andy Dalton, quarterback, and 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 you get to go on the pitch as well, which is sort of crazy. Yeah. Um, as I was walking off the pitch, just some guy just tapped me on the shoulder and said, you do know Sam White, she's behind you. And I was like, what? <laughs> so I, <laughs> uh, and I turned around, and he was literally just stood in the middle of the pitch by himself, walking towards me, and I was like, it was like a vision, and I was like, that's the, that, that's the guy, Sam White, by himself, and I, I just couldn't pass up that opportunity to, to say hello and have a chat with him. Um, so I walked over to him, shook his hand, said hello, such a nice guy, again, you know, they, they always say never meet your heroes, yeah. but to, to me, Sam was just fantastic. Um, took loads of time with me, asked me lots of questions, asked why we were so crazy in the UK to want to come over <laughs> to PBS <laughs> to, to watch games. Um, but yeah, actually, he was there for uh, um, sort of a Legends Day. And it was a signing session in the, in the in the pro shop. Right, right. So that was must have been like the fiftieth year uh, celebrations, right? When they bought. <laughs> So, were you there for that game when there were like loads of uh, legends, uh, kind of, who strolled out onto the field at halftime, like the, your Collinsworths and your and your people like that? Were you there for that game? I was there for the the, the Browns game. I think it was that game. Right, um, right, right. And, I'm, and, I, and on the Saturday, you know, that like I say, they did a signing session in the pro shop after practice. I, I went in, um, and obviously Sam was sat down at the table, and this is a mark of the guy that he is. Yeah. He spotted me from the other side of the club shop and waved. Oh wow! You, you know, he, he just spoke to me. You yeah. know, he could have just, you know, he could have just. He obviously got a hundred people around him, but he took that time to sort of 
catch my eye and, and say hello again, which was just like phenomenal. You know, you, you just melt when things like that. Yeah, happen. exactly. Yeah. So you, I mean, you were stood there. Talk, I mean, it's surreal enough being on the pitch at PBS, uh, but you yeah. were there on the pitch at PBS talking to oh. Sam Wise. You know, and <laughs> you know, which is like. That must have kind of ratcheted up the levels of surrealism to about three million, you know. Um, but what 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 was sounds really cool is that he took an interest in you. You know, he wanted yeah. to know what you were there for and why you were there. Hundred percent, and, and like like I say, you know, I, I could have stood there speaking to him for twenty minutes, but I, you know, I didn't want to take too much of his time. He, he was so genial. Um, always had the right questions, you know, he seemed genuinely interested in sort of like the UK Bengals fans and sort of our fandom. Um, you know, just just great. It, it was like being in a film, you know, it, 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 was that sort, it was that sort of feeling, it was sort of out-of-body experience. And obviously, you know, you're talking to one of the greats, you don't know what to say really, so you, you, start, you start blabbering and <laughs> yeah, right, it, was, right. it, was, it was one of those. You know, but yeah, just fantastic and like I say, a really nice guy and, and to top it all off, to, to say hello again later was just fantastic. Yeah, well, it's moments like that you realise uh, not only was he fantastic at his job and very innovative and obviously he brought a lot of success to the Bengals, but also, you know, you keep hearing these stories about his kindness and his willingness to chat to people and uh, I think you've just uh, illustrated that. So, Stu, thanks, mate. I appreciate that and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure we'll all be raising a glass to him at the next time we all see each other. Yeah, cheers, Paul. Good stuff. So many thanks to Danny and Stu for recounting their stories and I still can't quite believe that Danny refused the invitation to go into the locker room and meet the players. But again, it's just uh, demonstrates what a kind guy Sam Weich was for some random fan thousands of miles away just to bowl up and uh, here for him to take the time to talk to him and for Stu as well. And just before I replay the interview that I did with Sam last year, I want to recount my own story. And I'm a bit weird about this because um, it's quite a personal story. Um, as uh, long-term listeners will know, my dad went uh, through something similar to what Sam has just experienced uh, last year. And about a month after my dad died, um, I had this... I felt compelled, actually, there's no other word for it. I felt compelled to ring Sam up. Now, I still had his telephone number uh, from the podcast interview, uh, but I'm really not one of those people to kind of say, hey, look, I've got Sam's uh, Sam's uh, number. I'm going to drunk dial him every Saturday night and tell him how much I love him or, or whatever. You know, I really don't... Um, I, well, I, I treat the responsibility of having a phone number from someone like Sam very seriously. Um, but I thought, you know what, I'm going to give him a call because I'd read on the Bengals website and a Jeff, a Jeff Hobson had written, actually, that uh, Sam had uh, just been through a melanoma scare. Uh, and again, just because I was in that kind of frame of mind, my dad had just been through, uh, you know, a horror experience as as our family had. I just felt really compelled to reach out and, and offer him some support. Um which sounded ridiculous, the fact that I could just ring up Sam Weich. But uh, and I was umming and ahhing about it and thinking, should I do this or should I not? And I kind of thought, well, what's the worst he's going to say? You can just tell me to cock off and I will do so gladly. Um, but I gave him a ring and, and, if, and if a conversation uh, personifies Sam Weich, I like to think this was it. 
or that was it because um I whenever we ring our guests in America up we you know I use Skype so not to incur any monstrous telephone charges uh but much you know much of the time uh, if you use Skype and receive a, a call on the other, other side a, a number doesn't come up so it's kind of like a blank call or a number withheld um so Sam picked up the phone and I said hi is that Sam and he said uh no I'm afraid not Sam's just had a dreadful accident he was out in the back garden um and he was using an electronic chainsaw and he unfortunately he cut both his legs off and he died so I'm ever so sorry uh he can't come to the phone right now and and, the, and he put the phone down <laughs> and I was sat there going what what uh what 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 just happened there that was sad. that wasn't that was Sam talking so I thought I'll bugger it I'll ring up I rang him back and I said Sam Sam don't put the phone down it's 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 Paul from the UK who you spoke to on the podcast a few months back and don't put the phone down are you okay first and foremost and he, we had a bit of a chuckle, and he apologised, and uh, and he said that's how he gets rid of uh, cold callers and these kind of robot callers, as he called them. Uh, so that was a pretty amazing start to the conversation, and uh, I explained why I was telephoning. I explained that I'd, I'd seen the article, and you know I'd been some, through something similar with my dad, and I just felt compelled to to call him and to wish him well and offer him support and see how he was and we had the most incredible conversation um he he told me about his his struggles with melanoma he told me that it, it had come back and uh, we had more of a conversation about that and then he started asking me about my dad uh, and suddenly two worlds completely collided uh, incredible conversation about my dad what he was going through, and obviously I'll keep all that kind of stuff private. But at the end uh, of our conversation, um, he he told me something that really touched me. He said, "You know, we're bonded by this now, and uh, you know, I will. I'm happy to call you a friend. And uh, how do I get in touch with you to?" to let you know how I'm doing. And I was just kind of staggered because really I did not ring him up for that kind of validation. I just rang him up on a whim to see how he was. Uh, But by the end of it, um, I'm not saying that we were best mates or we were friends, you know, I'd never met him, obviously. Uh, I felt like I knew him because of my, my bond with him as I was growing up and watching the Bengals. But for him to to say to say those sort of things was really really touching and really quite incredible um so we swapped numbers and you know unfortunately his health deteriorated and uh, and and of course you know he wasn't going to ring me come on now um and I certainly wasn't expecting him to to be honest with you but I just wanted to let him know that there were fans over here that uh, that were looking out for him as surreal as that might sound and also uh, that I was thinking of him, and I think he really, really appreciated that. And uh, and that, and frankly, that conversation will stay with me for a long, long time. So that was me just blathering on about my own little personal story. And I think everyone who came into contact with Sam, it's pretty obvious that they have a Sam story, and that could have been a funny one, that could have been a sad one, that could have been a moving one, a touching one. But everyone had a Sam story. 
But as promised, here is uh, Sam Weich, the late great Sam Weich, uh, talking to us, little old us, on Cincinnati last year. And I'm going to play this interview in its entirety. Uh, so enjoy. Bengals, Souvenirs here with Team and E, we got them all. Great love for each fraternal love right now. It ain't ever going to be broken. There won't be another minute like this one, guys. We may top it, but there won't be a first time like this one is. Let's don't forget this feeling. Let's don't forget that we're just getting started. On January 22nd, 1989, the Cincinnati Bengals found themselves in Joe Robbie Stadium, Miami, preparing to take on the San Francisco 49ers in Super Bowl 23. Let's go, Jim Scout. Ready? All pro. You bet, baby. You want to be one? Probably a good one. I'll write a letter for you. Okay. All right. Let's go. David Grant, you're no longer a tenure now. You're a sophomore. <laughs> okay? Let's go, Ricky Dixon, number one. Get your best game together today, okay? Everybody in Oklahoma's watching, I think. Do they have TVs there? Yeah. Okay. Introducing the AFC champion, Cincinnati Bengals. Don't think about anything else but doing it to start the first play of the game. Just take your time getting ready. We got plenty of time. And then we'll take it to him. Coming off a 4-11 season, Bengals head coach Sam Weich was feeling the pressure. I thought there was a pretty good chance they'd fire me. We had so much pressure early on. We had to win the Hall of Fame game. I think we had to have uh, a near victory in the team scrimmage the week before the Hall of Fame game in order for them to keep me another week. I made jokes early in the year that I was on one of those seven-day renewable contracts. If we didn't make enough first downs, they were going to make a change. Boomer Esiason did much more than survive the 1988 season. He was the NFL's most valuable player. Eddie Brown goes in motion, and Esiason against a four-man rush is back to throw. Now he goes far down the field. There's Eddie Brown. Touchdown! Down to the 10-5. He is gone. He's a star. Yeah, I wasn't going to call him that before the end of the season, but, then I, but if I don't call him that now, then people are going to think I'm stupid again. He's got a tremendous arm, and once he's on that field, the players respond because they know he's going to put them in the right place at the right time. A lot of noise down there. Eddie Brown comes in motion. Boomer's going to have to throw into the end zone. Touchdown! Right against the end line, just before he was flattened. Touchdown to Tim McGee. We're not making the mistakes. We know what it takes to win ball games, and as long as we can do that, we can go a long way. Running out now, he looks, throws into the end zone. This one is a touchdown to Eddie Brown. Number 30, Icky Wood. Rookie running back Albert Icky Woods shared his teammates' dogged determination. Handoff goes to Icky, left side, he is down, touchdown! Icky Woods through the left side. But uh, when I scored, I did the dance, and it, it kind of like took off like wildfire. I didn't, I didn't expect it to take off like it did. Man, this is this is what happiness is about. This is what you play for. One more game and we finish it off. Watch out, Hendon! Hendon! 
Now that was a little compilation of clips I put together from YouTube and you might have heard the likes of our old friend Anthony Munoz who's been on this podcast before giving a pep talk before the big game. Uh, you heard Boomer Esiason too and Icky Woods uh, but the voice you heard the most was that of head coach Sam Weich and I'm delighted to say, like genuinely delighted to say that Sam is on the line now. Sam, are you there? I am here, looking forward to talking to you. I want to hear all about what I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably not going to be too much, to be honest with you. Uh, so listen, Coach, I, I couldn't think of anyone better to talk to than you about that 1988 team and the Super Bowl run and the Super Bowl itself. So it is a huge thrill for me personally that you, you could you could come on the line for a few minutes. But before we dig into that 1988 season... Um, Obviously, we had some sad news in Bengaldom last week because uh, quarterback Turk Shonat passed away. I know that you were very close to him, so I just wondered if you wanted to say a few words about Turk while you had the opportunity. Well, Turk was uh, the backup to Boomer Esiason, and and, uh, he's just one of those guys that was loved by everybody on the team. He passed away suddenly, unexpectedly, watching TV with his wife um, last Thursday. And uh, when she called for the ambulance and he was on the way to the hospital, he died before he got to the hospital. So uh, tomorrow, Wednesday, we're going to be uh, celebrating his life in Cincinnati. Boomer Esiason and Chris Collinsworth and several of the other players have put together a little uh, celebration of his life and we look forward to remembering the good times. Yeah, very well said. And we obviously mourn Turk and send condolences to his uh, family and friends. Now, Sam, uh, we got you on because it's the 30th anniversary of the uh, Super Bowl in 1989. Is that something that you think about? Were you aware of it? Um, What are your thoughts initially on that kind of anniversary? Actually, you reminded me of that when we <laughs> set up this interview. <laughs> that it was thirty years ago. It's wow. a lot. I'm getting, I'm getting older faster than I thought. You, me, both. <laughs> but um, yeah, time it does fly by. But the Bengals had earlier in the year they had a reunion at one of the ball games mm. of the Super Bowl team, and uh, a ton of the guys. Very few guys missed that. They were all there, and uh, they also had a review. A, um, 50th anniversary of the team itself and I was one of the original Cincinnati Bengals back in 1968 I played quarterback and um, and a bunch of those guys were there obviously 20 years before that Super Bowl so we were uh, a whole bunch of old codgers walking around (laughs) looking at each other trying to check each other's hairline so (laughs) (laughs) now um, okay let's rewind back 30 years if we possibly can um, 1987 was a, it was a 4-11 season. It was a strike-affected season. There was lots of strife on and off the field, I guess you'd say, and there were all kinds of player representative talks and craziness going on in that 87 season. And I guess you were under some pressure. Um, I want to ask what changed in that off season because the year before we were 10 and we finished 10 and six and. Uh, we're obviously a good team, and then '87 happened. What what changed in that off season between '87 and '88? What needed to happen to turn the team into a winning one? 
Well, '87 was a strike year, so that was a factor. There was a division in the in the locker room between players that were pro union, pro NFL Players Association, and then those who were pro management or pro owners of the team, and had different points of view. Actually, you know, there was some good good arguments, no fist fights, but some good verbal arguments right. in that locker room about different positions. So in the off season, I knew that wasn't going to we we weren't going to win with that. You had to have the team together. You gotta, you have a, a roster that uh, maybe the last guy on the roster goes in and makes the winning tackle to save, well, you know, save the victory for you. And my plan was this, and that was to put our an offensive player with a defensive player during training camp mm-hmm. and a black player with a white player. So we had all the, the reasons the guys might divide uh, together, and I also played into it those that took one position or another in 87 during the strike. And in the off season, I also pulled it out of my own pocket, paid for um, the YMCA. We had a beautiful YMCA in Cincinnati, still does, still do. And um, so that the players could go in there and in a really good environment, um, work out in the off season and be ready to go. Mm. And as a result, they came in with a good attitude. I had people in the key roles uh, behind me on that effort and, and wanting to win Boomer Sison being one of the key guys among others but yeah. uh, everybody came in with the right attitude we had a good team in 87 we just lost a lot of games we should have won or could have right. won right. under different circumstances so we put ourselves in a position to win and won the first six games in a row and um, held on at the end to beat the Buffalo Bills for the AFC championship to play the 49ers now, uh, as you say, you, as the season ticked by, as you got into it, you know, you, you had a terrific victory at Philadelphia. You beat the Raiders at, at or in L.A. for the first time in a long, long time. Um, you've beaten the Browns, who are a very good team back in those days. Suddenly you found, and when you beat the Jets, you found yourself 6-0. and Did you? Was that the moment when you thought, hold on a minute, we could be onto something special here? Yeah, well, that's right. And we'd also had beaten the Rams in the Hall of Fame game in Canton, Ohio, before right. we had an extra preseason game. So we really had a good streak. You know, winning begets winning. If you if you win a game, you start to believe you're going to win the next one. Hmm. And if you get beat, uh, the opposite happens. But we had uh, we we not only won the close games. Philadelphia was a game that could have gone either way. For example, as I recall, yeah, and. Um, and we won it and on the road in Philadelphia, tough place to win. And so that proved a lot of things. Not only could we win on the road, we could win the close games, we could win with injuries. And all of a sudden, this team believed they were going to win every time they won, went out there, and they did. Yeah, yeah. Almost every time. Now, yeah. now you'd beat you'd beat you beat the Bills at home in Week 13. That was that was crucial in terms of home field advantage later on in the playoffs. Um, and then there was that crazy last game at home against Washington in the last game of the season. Those, I just picked out some moments. What do you? And also that fantastic. I always remember this image of you kneeling by the side of, on the side of, on the sidelines when Jimmy Breach was stepping up to kick that extra t- uh, overtime field goal to win that game, uh, and then you getting doused with Gatorade afterwards because you know you, you'd won and you'd getting home for the advantage. Were there any particular key moments throughout that season that you really remember stick out for you? 
you mean that during that game? Well, I don't necessarily that, that game or just as the seat. I just picked out yeah. the Washington game, but, you know, there must have been a few right. other ones that you remember, that key moments. Well, you know, the, uh, the Redskins had a chance to uh, make a field goal that would have put, pretty much put it away for them with seconds to go in the game, and they hit the upright with a very good place kicker. And then so we, in uh, overtime, we blitzed. Uh, Barney Bussey from South Carolina State right? Um, and um, knocked the quarterback loose from the ball. Defense picks it up, runs it down to like almost the one-yard line, maybe the one-and-a-half-yard line, and the crowd's going, we want Icky, we want the Icky shuffle, <laughs> give it to Icky Woods. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I'm thinking to myself, you know, you hand that, you got a chip shot field goal to win. It's, o- it's over, we win it. Um, or we can give it to Icky and please the crowd, but there's a chance of a fumble because if I'm a defensive player, I've been coached to strip that ball loose in a yeah, situation yeah, yeah. like that. So I made the hard call, which was not popular. It wasn't unpopular, but they wanted to uh, see Icky go in there and finish the season with the Icky shovel. But sure. Jimmy Breach kicked one right straight through the middle of the um, uprights, and we won it. And then David Fulcher comes over with a bucket full of Gatorade. He's going to dump me. <laughs> But I'm so far ahead of David Fulcher, I've told you, I was way ahead of him on this one. I had a couple of the trainers go over and get me a bucket full of Gatorade, and the two of us splashed each other back and forth and then embraced, and uh, that special moment that only happens, you know, to a few, uh, most of the teams don't have that moment mm. each year because only two teams are going to that. Absolutely, uh, you absolutely. Know, going to that Super Bowl. Um, now, you mentioned Icky. And you mentioned David Fulcher, who was one of my favourite players. Um, they, were, they were fantastic. Now, the whole point of doing this, I guess, is because a lot of Bengals fans here in the UK aren't old enough to remember the 80s. Uh, they, they started supporting them when, when Marvin actually came on board and, and Carson Palmer was chucking it all over the place to Chad Johnson and TJ mm-hmm. Hushmanzada. That, that's when a lot of Bengals fans here started to support um, the team. What can you tell us about that team? What what you're you're a very innovative coach. You brought in the no huddle offense and utilized that really really well, which a lot of people weren't too happy about. But you know it was very effective. But in terms of players and style of the team, what what can you tell us about that that team? Well, let me preface the answer to that is that the players play the game. The coaches prepare the players to play the game, but they've got to go out there and make the catch and make the tackle and make, uh, you know, quick decisions as to which hole to hit on the running game and so forth. And the Marvin Lewis, number one, is a terrific coach, by the way. He's, of course, he lasted a long time, and you don't do that in the NFL unless you're very good at it. And uh, very, not only a good caller of the game or signal caller, but you're a good organizer of your team and, and, uh, and the coaching staff that goes with it. But they got they had the quarterback, number one, you better have a guy that can complete passes on third down, mm-hmm. first and second also. But third down is your drive stopping down. If you don't make a first down on third down, you end up having to punt or you know maybe kick a field goal if you're within range. And um, Arvin had a... Uh, an offensive line, much like we had in when I was coaching there, we had one of the best, maybe the best offensive line in football for a number of years with Anthony Munoz at left tackle anchoring the whole group. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that was it. And, and, you know, once you look around as a football player, uh, 
professional football player who's had a lot of people you can compare your team to and compare posi- position players to, you look around and you start saying, hey, that guy's as good as I've ever seen, or that guy's, you know, I've only seen one guy better than him mm. somewhere else. Mm. All of a sudden you decide you're on a good team and you, you just win. You just go out there with a totally different attitude, and the attitude makes sometimes the difference in close ones. Mm, absolutely. Now, um, you mentioned a good offensive line, and it's a question I've always wanted to ask you, actually, personally. Um, when that early part of the season, Boomer was throwing it all over the place to Rodney Holman, and uh, who was a fantastic tight end, Ed, had a great tandem receiver duo of Tim McGee and Eddie Brown, uh, and of course, fantastic running backs like James Brooks was terrific out of the backfield, catching passes as well as running it as well. But this, as the season yeah. went on, and certainly during the playoffs when we, when we beat Seattle and then Buffalo again, there seemed to be a, a switch to the the power run game. Was that always the game plan? It's the game plan if it's working. You know, every <laughs> game it kind of takes on a life of its own, and if you're smart, you're paying attention to the life that's chosen yeah. for you that day. <laughs> but um, you know, the, the Super Bowl itself, uh, leading up to that, you you described it perfectly. But um, the night before the Super Bowl, you know, we had an incident with Stanley Wilson, yeah. who is a outstanding running back from Oklahoma University, and. Um, the the field the next day was going to be a little unsteady because mm. the grass had not taken hold. They had resodded the field, which mm. they do for every Super Bowl. But the these eighteen inch square chunks of grass mm. uh, had not taken hold, and so they were coming up. When you made a cut, they they would just fly out of the, the ground. Well, our guys like Stanford Jennings and, and James Brooks and Nicky Woods were were long striding, bend back kind of runners. They were excellent at it, mm. but they could. We we lined them up deep. We had them coming downhill so they could see where the hole was about to open, and they'd break into the, you know, one of three holes. Basically, they didn't always hit the same one. Yeah. But in this game, when they would bend back, they lost their quickness because they had to measure their steps. Right. Right. Stanley Wilson would have been the exact opposite. He'd have had the defense falling down. Well, Stanley is a two, was a two-time loser to cocaine. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was his third strike, and he was out in those days. And I had hardest thing I had to do before the game and, and after the game to live with it was to tell Stanley he wasn't going to play uh, in that ball game because of the a drug overdose or a drug use the night before the, the night game. before. Yeah, that's right. Such a tragic yeah. story, isn't it? Um, and then, of course, yeah. you had. It was an an auspicious start because of Stanley and his and his addiction, but then of course you had more adversity to to kind of get over when when Tim Crumry, uh, Pro Bowl defensive tackle, uh, obviously had that horrific injury um, quite early in the game. Did you? What were your thoughts then? I mean, it was such a big occasion. It was the biggest moment in in your. Sp- perhaps your sporting life, you know, lots of players' sporting life. Describe the role of a head coach when adversity like that happens to a team. Well, n- number one, Tim Crumry played at Wisconsin, um, was an uh, All-American heavyweight wrestler there. So he's a tough dude. Yeah. And he was kind of the heart and soul of that defense. He, he could fire that team up by himself. The coaches didn't have to worry about that end of it. And to see him go down, he actually broke, um, 
his leg in three places between the knee and the ankle. It's called a floppy break, and mm-hmm. it was a nasty hit. But Tim wouldn't even would not leave the sideline. This happened really early in the game. It might have been the first series, first mm-hmm. defensive series. Um, certainly the first or the second. But anyway, he he wanted to stay on the sideline with the team. And when the half ended and we go into the locker room, the doctors <laughs> tied the uh, gurney to the wall and he couldn't get back out. So oh, wow. uh, he, he watched the second half on television, but he wouldn't even go to the hospital until after the game was over with. Mm. But losing him, of course, just lost a lot of continuity, a lot of the glue that held that team together defensively. Even though David Grant, the fellow that went in in his stead, played did a very terrific well, didn't job. Yeah. Had a great game. Yeah, mm-hmm. he played beautifully. Yeah, but there still wasn't Tim Crumrise uh, intangibles on the field. Yeah, uh, and yet, with all this adversity, with all the turf, and you know, it was a defensive game, and you were still there right at the end. And we all know what happened right at the end. It was an absolute heartbreaker. Um, mm-hmm. But what what are your overriding memories of that game? Do you, do you look back and think, God, I wish, oh goodness, I wish we could could have done something differently, or did we leave anything out on the field there? Do, do you know what I mean? Do you do you sometimes think that, or do you not at all? Um, yeah, and I know what it was too. All I right. mean, we, uh, obviously, you analyze those kind of things pretty quick. Um, we kick a field goal is I don't know maybe three minutes left, maybe a little less, something right in the range of three minutes to go. We're up by three points. We played a great game. 49ers have played a great game. It's been a television gym. Advertisers are happy. Everything's going well. <laughs> and we go up by three. And um, we kick off, and, and San Francisco is holding on the kickoff, so they start out on the minus nine-yard line. So they've yeah. got to go uh, 91 yards to score. And, of course, if they want to win it, they have to score a touchdown. They could try to tie it up with a field goal. Mm. Um, I went over to Dig LeBeau, and just a sidebar here, I'm wired. I've got the television has a mic on me. They've got right. a, a solo camera isolated on me the entire game, isolated on Boomer's eyes and also on Bill Walsh and, the, and Joe Montana on the 49ers side. Yeah. But I can't go over there and be too uh, dramatic with my comments. I've got to be <laughs> poised. And I'm talking to Dick LeBeau, who's maybe as good as any defensive coordinator ever in the mm-hmm. NFL. And I say, Dick, go after this like it's first and 10 in the first quarter. Don't sit back and play a zone. Prevent. This right. guy, Joe Montana, will pick you apart. Who you knew and who I you know coached. Him. You know. Yeah. yeah. I knew him very well. I coached him his first four years in the league. Coached him in his first Super Bowl win, Super Bowl 16, over, uh, you know, another Bengal team. Yes. But I said, go after this guy. Make him throw it. If they score a touchdown, at least leave us, you know, time to uh, come back and, and uh, answer it. Yeah. And first play, I, and I told him, I said, if you bring five people, he'll lay the ball off. I know the system. I was there the whole time it was put in right. in San Francisco years ago. And we bring five guys. Joe drops back, lays the ball off. We come up and make the tackle at second and eight mm-hmm. at the 11-yard line. So, and then the next play, prevent defense. Next play, prevent defense. And I'm going over trying – to say, get back into basic first mm. quarter strategy. And, uh, you know, Dick's idea was different, and he had done a great job all year long. And uh, if that was anything I could do, I'd be a little bit more demanding and, and, you know, make that happen. But 
remember we drop a pass uh, just a few plays before the yeah. touchdown that won the game for the San Francisco 49ers. We yeah. drop a pass in the end zone. Lewis Phillips, our defensive back. Yeah. yeah. And if we catch that ball, he just falls down in the end zone. They only had one timeout left. We win the ball game. We're world yeah. champs. So, and that's what it that's, takes. That's uh, what happens in sport, isn't it? It's just on. those little tiny moments. You know, it's such a fine line between mm-hmm. victory. Listen, Sam, uh, you've been brilliant, and I could talk to you all night, but I won't because uh, I'm sure you've got lots of things to do. Um, um, well, you can call me back anytime. I enjoy talking to you, and I enjoy talking to our, our audience in, in uh, England. This is a rare treat for me. Well, uh, well, uh, we yeah, appreciate I, the support over there. Believe me, you, 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 you were quite shocked when I told you about Bengals UK yesterday, weren't you? But um, yes, there are Bengals fans here. This is what we do. We try and unite these guys here in the UK, and I think uh, having you on will be a, a, a big deal for a lot of people. But I just wanted to finish off um you mentioned in one of your locker room speeches about a fraternal bond uh, between your players and the players seem to have that and you uh, when you go through that experience that shared experience with a group of people like you did um it must must you must look back on that as a very proud man and also as you know you look back on it as a very special journey that you went on with these guys well, it is, and it's a long one, and, and it's uh, one that's very unforgiving. You know, you drop one pass, and it's the difference in being a world champion or being the AFC champions. Remember, the two teams in that game are champions, AFC champion against the NFC, mm. and the winner is going to be the world champion, uh, theoretically. Yeah. But um, the players, by the way, won't wear that AFC or NFC championship ring they call that the loser's ring right. they lost one game but it was the super bowl the big yeah. game yeah and so that's the, the the big difference in the whole thing the other thing is you know you come back and every year you're the bullseye for everybody that you play the next year yeah. you're the last year's super bowl team yeah even though you didn't win it you're one of the teams and so this next season is markedly more difficult than any other year Mm. And uh, the next year, we didn't make the playoffs. In fact, a lot of teams don't make the playoffs no, the year after right. we go to the Super Bowl. That's right. I think you got you guys finished eight and eight. I think in eighty nine, didn't you? And then um, nine and seven in ninety. And um, yeah, listen, Sam. Thank you so much for joining us uh, on Cincinnati. And um, yeah, maybe we can speak again sometime. All right. I'm. Uh, you know how to get me here. These. These wireless phones they put out—I don't know what they call them over there—but they're just <laughs> wireless phones to be. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I am—I've got one in my pocket all the time. Call me anytime. So there we go. That was our interview with Sam Weish last year. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you enjoyed our little tribute episode. We felt uh, we had to do something. Uh, we were asked to do something by you know. People in our group and fans from the UK got in touch, said, you know, are you going to do something? So I hope you enjoyed that tribute to Sam. And um, you know what? They, they say never meet your heroes. And I mean, uh, but I think uh, in Sam's case, that's a load of old nonsense, really. He's a man that you would always want to meet, always want to talk to. And he had time for everyone. So it's only just that we have time for Sam. And frankly, we'll always have time for Sam. So we send love and condolence to Sam's family, his friends, all the players that were privileged enough to play 
with him and for him. And of course, all the Bengals fans across across the world who looked up to him and uh, idolised him like I did. Now, this podcast will be back, as I mentioned at the top of uh, the show, next week. Nathan will be back and we'll be settling back into a normal rhythm up until the Super Bowl. We'll be, as I say, grading the position groups. That'll be a laugh, won't it? And we'll also be going through our Players of the Year. But until that moment... It's a who day from me. And it should also be noted that the views and opinions expressed within this podcast do not reflect those of the Cincinnati Bengals organisation.